So it's a great pleasure to uh, welcome Sophie Scott from uh, University College uh, to Oxford. Um, so I'll just tell you a little bit about uh, Sophie. She did her uh, PhD in Cognitive Science at uh, UCL in 1994. Uh, she then uh, went up to the MRC Cognition and Brain Sciences Unit in Cambridge for four years before being recruited back to uh, UCL where she's been uh, ever since. She's in the Institute of Cognitive Neuroscience at UCL where she's a Deputy Director. She's a Wellcome Trust Senior uh, Research Fellow uh, and her main interests have been in, uh, and there she heads the uh, uh, Speech Communication Group. Um, she's, what she's been interested in over the years has been the neural basis for vocal communication and more recently, um, we'll hear a little bit about this, uh, she's been interested in, uh, in laughter, which uh, tells me if you Google laughter, or if you look in PubMed, you find about 44 papers on it. So if anybody wants an area where she's absolutely uh, ready to be uh, mined, then that clearly is one. So, great pleasure. Thank you very much Thank for you. coming. And Sophie's going to talk about the speech to laughter and back again. Thank you very much. Um, so this is the same, this is a different type title from my uh, advertised title, but it's the same talk, so don't worry. Um, so I, the perspective I'm going to start with is something that I found very interesting that's developed over the last kind of um, 20 years or so. If you work in speech communication and speech perception, speech production, we've been really dominated by views from neuropsychology about sort of Wernicke's area and Broca's area. And along with the rise of functional imaging back in the 90s, there was a big development in the sort of technical abilities to do primate neurophysiological, neuroanatomical recordings from auditory areas, which have kind of, I think, widened this whole area out for us in a very useful way. Um, and what the work from the monkeys is indicating that as in the visual system, you've got streams of processing. You've got, some, you've got a primary auditory cortex sitting up here and running forward down from primary auditory cortex down the superior temporal lobe in monkeys, you see cells that become aggressively more interested in conspecific vocalizations, sounds made by other monkeys. And in posterior areas, you find cells that care about where those sounds are coming from and also seem to respond to um, somatic sensation touch to the face. So there looks like a general, at least two, probably three streams of processing in audition that are seem to be ways that the primate brain deal with incoming sensory information. In the same way that you've got different streams of processing running from visual cortex on into the rest of the brain. So <coughs> this kind of perspective is really useful because when we got data like this, um, it helped us understand what we were getting. So this is quite an old study now, and I apologise for showing you such extremely old data. But this is a study where we were looking for where in the brain you can find responses to intelligibility in speech. And this is the first study where we were quite comfortable that we found something that was sort of left lateralised and we controlled all the other things that would be going on when you hear speech. Rather than finding stuff at the back end of the temporal lobe, which is where we thought Wernicke's area was in the 90s, uh, our responses were all down here. And, and it's very interesting that down at the front end of the left temporal lobe you can find a brain response which cares about speech you can understand. It doesn't really care what it sounds like. It doesn't care if it sounds like a human speaking or a robot speaking. It's responding to intelligibility. Then we came across this primate literature and realised it looks like this same anatomical stream. If you move forward and away from primary auditory cortex, you get more and more selected for responses which are associated with conspecific vocalisations, i.e. sounds made by other humans. But here, of course, for humans, 
that's the front end of spoken language. So that seems to be quite interesting, and it's you know it's been very useful I think to use this framework. Um, <coughs> we can also we see well that's some that's people hearing sentences. So that's not very kind of um, very precise. You don't really know what's driving that. So this is a much more recent study where we actually comfortably the most boring experiment I've ever been a subject in. People just heard isolated phonemes. They heard sounds like. It was awful. That was a bad example at the end, though. We didn't do that one. Um, and what you see is, in fact, the same regions running forward down the temporal lobe, the dominance on the left, respond to little voiceless phonemes. So if you play this to all my phonetician colleagues, they say, that's not speech. That's just sort of little elements of stuff. And it is just elements. It's the bare minimum of something you could have that's a speech sound. Nonetheless, these dorsolateral temporal lobe regions running forward from primary cortex care about them. So you don't have to have like, large amounts of sentences in there. Even like the smallest possible elements of speech sounds can drive the system. So that's interesting. And of course, it's not the end of the speech perception system. It's just the start of it. So if you do something like increase the power of your study by putting a lot more subjects in, what you see are these same left anterior temporal lobe regions start to associate, it starts to be more like the front end of the system. And you can get anterior temporal pole responses, basal, temporal lobe regions responding, all these regions associated with higher order information in the speech, semantic information in the speech, um, you can start to see recruited. So I think these, this what stream of processing seems to be a way of getting spoken language into the system. It's not the end of it, it's the start of it. And it's, I think that the, the primate neurophysiological basis here is sort of giving us a, a guidelines for the early perceptual processing which at some point becomes harder to draw comparisons between humans and non-primate, non-human primates, because although we, vocal communication is important to both, obviously language is more complex. But I think you're seeing a, a useful early system here in common between humans and non-human primates. Um, <coughs> we also saw some lateralisation in the effect. So the stuff I was showing you is all happening on the left, which is consistent with the the patient literature indicating it's patients with damage to the left side of the brain who have problems with spoken language. This is another study where we played people non-speech sounds and we quite were careful to, these were emotional sounds, we, we avoided things like uh, kind of verbalised versions, things like yuck or boo-hoo. So we've got sounds here of people um, laughing, people cheering, you've got sort of woohoo sounds, uh, you've got screams, you've got Ugh! sounds, and the stuff in red showing you an acoustic baseline. What you see is a very similar effect. <coughs> so you get the responses running along the STS with again with this dominant peak down at the front end. The difference here being the response is primarily on the right. So there's hemispheric asymmetries going on here. Um, it's not that you don't see a response on the left to these sounds, but the response is dominant to non-verbal vocalisations on the right. And it's now becoming clear that actually this, these anterior streams have got considerable complexity to them, so there are hemispheric asymmetries. The stuff on the right seems to generally like non-speech information in the voice, so it likes um, uh, that's emotion information, it likes speaker information, it likes prosody and melody. Um, the stuff on the left we tend to interrogate as being to do with speech, because that's what we're looking at, but it's also almost certainly the case that it's not specific to speech. It may be to do with sort of things you can label, things you can categorise, things you can identify. So, just to say that, so we've got these two anterior streams, left and right, that seem to have somewhat different things they're interested in, and they're almost certainly not limited to spoken language. There's, of course, all these posterior auditory areas. Um, 
And they have cocked up in a number of different studies that sort of seem to map between speech perception and speech production. So this is quite an old study now, um, in fact an even older set of data collected by Richard Wise, where in this study there were four different conditions and people either produced a sentence, by Bobby or Poppy, by Bobby or Poppy, or they mouthed it silently, or they just sort of voiced it, uh, 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 or they imagined it. And the study was originally designed to look at breath control during speaking, because in fact you breathe very differently when you are going uh, 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 or bye, Bobby or Poppy, than when you're mouthing or imagining it. You, you use, I'll show you an example of this. Breath control when you're talking is in fact very different. And what Richard realised you could use this to look at was to look for brain regions which respond when you're speaking, even if you're speaking... And when you do this, what you find is a region in posterior auditory cortex, in fact running very medially, which is responding to speech production, even though that speech production is... So it's not reacting to the sound of your voice. And, as I'll show you, what it looks like is, in fact, this is part of a posterior auditory system, which is part of the guidance of articulation. If you look at, for example, changing how somebody speaks, this is somebody talking under delayed auditory feedback, so he's talking and he's hearing his own voice come back to him at a, about a 200 millisecond delay. Listen to what it does to his voice. 200 milliseconds. Understanding the constraints on Kennedy, Hannah and Hesburgh wanted the Commission to exert counterpressure by having special access to the White House through a liaison. Kennedy said that Harris Wofford, whom he had made a special, a full-time specialist assistant on civil rights, was already on the job, which was false. But Hatner and Hesburgh responded to the Wofford. <coughs> the problem here seems to be when you, you're hearing, you've ever talked to somebody on a, a satellite phone link and you. How there's a delay and you'll notice how difficult it is to start to speak under those controls, under those conditions. The problem seems to be the delay is about 200 milliseconds, it's very disruptive. So in a room like this, actually there's lots of delay when I'm talking, my auditory system can clean that up. When it gets about 50 milliseconds it becomes noticeable, 200 milliseconds it becomes very disruptive. And that seems to be because it's about the length of the syllable, so you're starting to say one syllable while you hear the last syllable you just said starting. And you can hear there, it's really disrupting them at the starts of words. It's it's getting stuck on the beginnings of words. People are very variable in how they respond to it, but more or less everybody is strongly affected. What I did was a study, again, a while ago now, we was in PET, because that used to be a lot easier to do speech production in PET, um, where we took people who could keep talking. They didn't stop talking under this condition. And we wanted people who could keep going to see how their voices were affected while we varied the length of the delay. I ended up with a lot of teachers and vicars in this study. Uh, not through design, but I think they may just be used to sort of putting their voices out there. Uh, so we've got this variation in the amount of the delay. And what you see, although it's a speech production task that you are making difficult, the brain <coughs> regions which correlate with the amount of the delay and with the experience difficulty are all in pretty much all in posterior auditory fields. You can see it blurring over into sensory motor cortex there. But it looks like the detection of and the compensation for speaking under this difficult condition is actually largely to do with auditory cortex. And it's now becoming clear that as in that sort of perceptual system I was showing you, this is actually data from a speech production study. <coughs> there's, there's considerable complexity, and that's those same auditory regions I was showing for perception, 
actually also differentiated in production, such that anterior auditory fields, the ones shown in yellow here, are actually suppressed when you speak and when you mouth, and posterior auditory fields are enhanced when you speak and when you mouth. So you're seeing that sort of, those themes of processing actually do different things in production as well as in perception. These regions shown back at the end of the temporal lobe in blue here, this has been called a how stream of processing. It seems to be to do with the guidance of output. It's by direct analogy with a visual how system for how you might adapt your hand to interact with objects in the visual environment. Um, and there are projections in these posterior regions too. Motor cortical fields, it seems to be a route for going between, uh, well, one route for going between sound and action. Um, and indeed, as you might expect, there are strong and robust effects in motor cortex and premotor cortex to hearing sounds. This is a meta-analysis from a paper a few years ago now, but it's just sort of showing the, the, the range and the complexity of sounds that actually drive activation in motor cortex. So this is in addition to the stuff you'll see in auditory areas. Uh, you see a response there to speech, but also to action sounds, tool sounds, song, vocalisations, degraded speech, and there's some modification in there, so it looks like actually when you hear degraded speech or speech in very noisy environments, you, might act, you seem to activate motor cortex more than when you're listening to a clear speaker in a quiet environment. But just really, you can, uh, David Ostry <coughs> uh, from Montreal has been saying you can basically consider motor cortex to be part of a perceptual system because it's getting input from sensory areas and that's how you know part of how you're actually guiding what you're doing and I was interested in this because we were interested in potential differences between the auditory sensitivities of motor cortex and auditory cortex because they do seem to have somewhat different special specializations so you don't so the, that response I was showing you in auditory cortex to hearing isolated phonemes like um, you don't see in motor cortex it shows a much more generic response to sound um, but I also got interested because along in a sort of parallel world, I've been looking, as you've seen one example already, we look at emotional vocalisation. So I've got this work that was going on with speech and hearing speech and producing speech. But back, back from work I've been doing in the 90s, I was looking at emotional expressions of, emo of vocal, non-verbal expressions of emotion. Initially, as a way of coming up with another modality for testing patients who had new neuropsychological deficits. So back in the 90s, Andy Calder and Andy Young in Cambridge were working with patients who had amygdala damage and who had particular problems recognising facial expressions of fear and some, some problems with anger. They wanted to know, would that translate to other modalities? So I came up with auditory versions of these. That carried on. They were interesting. In fact, it is quite interesting, these emotional vocalisations. And this is from a study that we did with emotional vocalisations that gave us a slightly surprising result. So what we noticed... Uh, in fact, this is the data I showed you before with the response to the temporal lobe. See, when people hear emotional vocalisations like screams and laughs and <coughs> sounds, you get lots of auditory cortex activation with a dominant response on the right. You also get lots of responses in mirror systems, orofacial mirror systems. And in fact, my colleague Jane Warren, who noticed this in the first set of data, first few data sets we collected, where it suggested we go back and start the whole thing again and include a motor localiser so we could expressly test for these. So what you can see up here in green are brain regions which respond when you hear emotional vocalisations and when you move your face into a smile in this case. Interestingly, well this seems to suggest that when you hear somebody laughing or somebody cheering, you're getting auditory cortex activation, but you're also getting abundant sort of sensory motor um, and, and you can see SMA activation 
<coughs> and right inferior frontal activation when you hear the sounds as well. And actually, to a, to a stronger degree than I've ever seen when people listen to speech. And this, this seemed interesting. Um, and in fact, Jane looked at this in more detail, and she found it wasn't the same for all of the sounds. So we've got, we, the study was deliberately designed to have very, very positive sounds, like laughter and cheering in there, and very negative sounds like disgust and fear, which we selected because they're both very, very positive and very negative, and they're very recognisable. And in fact, these orofacial mirror system regions are not... Um, equivalent in their activation to all the sounds. They are strongly correlated with valence, how negative and positive the sounds are, and their arousal. So essentially, these lateral regions here are being driven by the sounds that are high in arousal and high in valence, like laughter. And we thought that's quite interesting, because there is a literature on laughter that says it's a very contagious emotion. It's a behaviourally contagious emotion. So if you hear me going, ugh, ugh, you feel sick quite immediately. I feel sick quite immediately. It's emotional. That's its job. That's the job of disgust, is to you know, convey emotional information. You don't start going, ugh, as well. It's not behaviourally contagious, whereas laughter is immensely behaviourally contagious. You can catch a laugh off somebody without necessarily knowing why they're laughing. And Robert Prodine, I'll come back to him, has, has written quite a lot about this. Um, so it looked like what we were seeing was maybe a hallmark of contagion here. Interestingly, yawning, which is also very behaviourally contagious, looks very similar, very similar orofacial activation. So that seemed interesting. And, and actually, as I'm going to go briefly take a bit of a detour now, kind of fitted in with some of the data we were collecting that suggested that actually laughter might be worth looking at in a bit more detail. So here I've got two real-time MRI images of people talking and people laughing. So I apologise, there's quite a loud noise in the background. This is the scanner noise, but this is, I'm going to show you talking first. So what you see with talking is people are producing a flow of air by using their intercostal muscles, which you can't see on the MRI, and then they're producing a sound at the larynx, which they then shape with the articulators. Um, and this is my colleague Zarina talking in the scanner while we drive it as a video camera. interesting, uh, this is going to be very exciting I think for the future of being able to look at what actually happens when we are, we have very bad proprioception within the mouth, so we're quite good for the tongue blade but pretty much everything else we don't know what's up to, so if I go ooh, I can kind of feel my larynx moving up and down, I don't feel my tongue jumping into a ball and going off back into my pharynx following it, it's quite extraordinary. Now this in contrast is laughter and laughter like other non-verbal expressions of emotion is a lot more like an animal call than it is like speech, so pretty much all the stuff that's going on is going on down at the rib cage and at the larynx. You don't get this supralaryngeal involvement. I'm afraid there's no sound on this, but imagine the sound of someone laughing. This is my colleague um, Carolyn McGettigan. So you can see the movements of the laughter. There's literally nothing happening. The, the tongue's just flat in the mouth. A little bit of stuff coming up at, up at the back of the pharynx. Basically just reflects the fact that she's moving. <laughs> Okay, so very different. And, and consistent with that, if you actually look at what's happening when you're <laughs> laughing, it makes most sense to actually look at breathing. So this is metabolic breathing here. This is just a breath belt measurement of what happens, hopefully, what's happening for all of you now. As you breathe in, use your intercostal muscles and your diaphragm to raise the ribcage out and up, 
cause negative pressure inside the lungs, you breathe in, and then just relax them back down, you breathe out. So you get this cyclical movement. This is just here on metabolic breathing to show you the chest movement going just as a volume going in and out like that. Here, the next panel along, you've got laughter. What happens when you laugh is those same muscles now start to spasm. Get these very precise contractions like that. And that's pretty much all that's happening when you laugh. So then if you look here, this is a spectrogram, you're not getting much complex spectral variation because you're not doing anything up here, you're not shaping the sound. And the sound that you end up with is just pretty much directly reflecting that ha-ha-ha movement of the intercostal muscles. Speech, in contrast, you get, as I suggested earlier, very different pattern of motor control as you maintain a constant sub-vocal pressure, air pressure, using your intercostal muscles that lets you make a constant sound here, which you then shape. And you're shaping that, giving you a tremendous amount of um, spectral complexity. So it's a much more basic sound. It's essentially just reflecting very directly what the ribs are doing, what, how the ribs are moving. And if you look at laughter in more detail, what you tend to find is laughs typically start with one big exhalation, like that, and then more ha ha ha's. So you very, very simple sound. It's very hard to take cues away from laughter and lose the laughter. As long as you've got that amplitude variation, people tend to be able to spot the laughter, because that's essentially all that it is. You can get some other stuff coming in. So in addition to these big contractions, the pharynx can start to tighten up. If you ever laugh such that your throat hurts, it's actually reflecting this constriction. And that can lead to sort of whistling sounds, actually, just like a whistle at the lips happening back here at the glottis. So in fact, you can see this here. Whoever's laughing here, I think it's my brother, has actually got a glottal whistle happening there because the amount of pressure that's happening at the start of that laugh. And the other thing that happens, because you create much higher pressures within the ribcage than you would normally do when you're speaking, you start to produce very different pitches. So in fact, very often, one of the first signs that somebody's about to start laughing, you can actually track this is a loss of control at the larynx as they're speaking. It's actually reflecting they're starting to lose control of the intercostal muscles. I've got an example of this here. Oh, hang on, I've got an example. I'll play an example of that shortly. So the thing I was interested in, we've got this funny, very recognisable sound. Is it a basic expression of emotion? So basic expressions, this is work kind of building on Charles Darwin's hypothesis by Paul Ekman. Paul Ekman said that basic emotions are universal, so you find them in all human cultures. They've got distinct expressions, they're not confusable with each other. They're based upon a specific neural system. So patients like Andy, Andy Colden and Andy Young's patient had bilateral amygdala damage. You couldn't recognise fear and anger anymore, but you could still recognise happiness and disgust, so suggesting some differentiation in there. And they're evolutionarily ancient. You don't only find them in humans. They are uh, something to do with, say, mammalian evolution. <coughs> and these are the emotions that Paul Ekman determined to have these characteristics, and he's doing it all with faces based on facial movements. So you've got happiness, sadness, anger, fear, disgust, and surprise. So they, they have these characteristics. Now, it's not uncontroversial. Some people say that it's still largely mediated by um, cultural factors, but from his perspective, in terms of things that fulfil the criteria by his description, these are the emotions that fit this. And I was interested because... I was working with these, and I thought, is this striking how negative they all are? I and mean, as Chris alluded in his talk, we tend to, when we talk about emotion in psychology and neuroscience, we tend to mean negative emotions. And on my day-to-day -day basis, I don't experience many of these in a strong form, and very often apart from happiness, really. Um, and I asked Paul Ekman about this, 
Um, and he said, in fact, he turned out to have published a paper on this, that he thought there would be more positive expressions of emotion out there that would have the characteristics of being basic emotions, but they might all share a, a smile. They might not be differentiated particularly with the face. They'd be differentiated by other cues. For example, he's very interested in body movement and also, of course, the voice. Oh, great. Well, you know, that's what I do. Let's start testing this. So I started testing out some of his hypotheses, and he'd specifically thought that happiness, you might be able to fractionate into contentment, pleasure, relief, and phew, sounds, um, triumph, and this is in our culture, it tends to be a sort of cheering sound, and amusement, what he called amusement, which uh, is laughter. Um, I'll go through these in detail. What we found is that we made examples of these. We found ones people could recognise. We found that, consistent with his hypotheses, these positive emotional sounds, in addition to the negative sounds, they've got different acoustic characteristics. So sounds which um, have got lots of amplitude onsets, tend to be heard as laughs. Um, they don't, you also don't get a lot of overlap, apart from uh, physical pleasure and contentment, which don't seem to be different from one another. They're probably not two different emotions there. And we found that arousal and valence also correlated with the acoustics, so the higher pitched a sound, the shorter a sound, the more aroused it's heard as being. Um, just have to take a sidestep here. I don't think that these couldn't necessarily be expressed with the face as well. I think one of the problems with the face is by working with face, he meant using photographs. And certainly for laughter, a static photograph of somebody doesn't necessarily look like them laughing. In fact, they can look like they're in pain. These are two men laughing. If I show you, particularly the chap on the right, if I show you now a clip that this has come from, it's an outtake from Curb Your Enthusiasm, it's unambiguously laughter. So I think if from the outset, if he'd had video, he probably, rather than photographs, he probably would have had laughter in, and maybe some other positive emotions. So, but this is just an aside, though. I don't think this is, doesn't mean to say laughter couldn't be expressed with, uh, you know, with the face as well. But this is an example of somebody starting to laugh. Now listen to what I said about losing control over voicing. Somebody's trying to do... unpopular replacement has now been dismissed with the Army's popular Chief of Staff, Jack Twat, taking over. A 40-foot sperm whale, which was stranded in the Firth of Forth for more than four days, is now thought to be swimming towards open waters again. It freed itself late last night. Marine experts are hoping to establish this morning whether the whale is finally back at sea. Good luck to the whale. Ten past <coughs> So this is quite an interesting thing about laughter. This is a woman who talks on the radio for a living. She doesn't want to laugh. She gets in trouble for laughter. She got in trouble for this. Um, what's happened is the guy's coming down the line. He's got to say a silly name. He's got to say Jack Twat. And he just goes for it. He's like, Jack Twat, popular chief of staff, nothing to see here. And then if you listen very carefully, somebody back in the studio leans into Charlotte Green and goes, <laughs> and they're doing that for one reason and one reason only. They are trying to make her laugh, and it starts to work. And the first sign is the change in her, her control over her intercostal muscles. Is that you can actually hear her and see her doing the pitch there, losing control of her voicing. And then by the end of the statement, she's finally back at sea. Her pitch goes right up because of that in greatly increased pressure in, in, due to the intercostal muscle movement. And then she continues making a noise, even though she has stopped speaking. I, think this is, I don't have an answer for this, but 
I think it's very striking how we can be completely overwhelmed by laughter in this way, such that she doesn't want this to happen. She doesn't want to be making these noises. She doesn't want to laugh. She'd like to stop laughing. She still can't. Once it's started, it's going to come out. This is another more famous example. Von Mann tells a very bad joke. And listen, immediately, as soon as he makes a joke, it's not a very funny joke. And the effect it has on the other man's speech, and he's going to immediately... He's managed to try to do the splits over it, unfortunately, uh, the inner part of his side must have just removed the veil. This didn't quite get his leg over there. Terrible. Yeah, pitch goes up. He did very well indeed, having 131 minutes and three fours. And uh, then we had Lewis playing extremely well. Other man's now laughing. 47 long out. Agus, do stop it. Uh, and he was joined by the Freitas, who um, was in for 40 minutes, a useful little partnership there. Uh, they put on 35 in 40 minutes, and then he was caught by Dujon Walsh. Now, at this point, Brian Johnson, the man speaking, pauses to take a breath in, and he starts to speak again. Now the laughter's got him and all hell breaks loose. Particularly, you look again at the picture of his voice, but you also get a glottal whistle. No. You hear spasms where the intercostal muscle contractions run together. Um, Lawrence, always entertaining, apparently for 30, 35. Whistle. 35 minutes. <laughs> the next call. Over the week, he was. <laughs> <laughs> Jonathan Agnew tries to speak. Yeah. Yes, Lawrence. <laughs> Fails completely. It's a poor son of a wicked man. He was out for the night. How fortunate. 12 minutes. There was caught by Haynes on plans number two. And there were 54 extras. And they were all out for 419. I've stopped laughing now. <laughs> What I like about that is it's almost like a perfect natural evolution of uncontrollable laughter. And as you can see, as he gets control back over his muscles, you can see the picture of his voice comes down. He says, I've stopped laughing now. <laughs> the other thing that's quite striking about this is it consistent with that contagion of laughter. Almost as soon as they start laughing at the joke, they, it stops being about the joke. It starts being about the fact that they're just setting each other off. He's saying, do stop it because you're making me laugh. And so it's very, you can play this, I can play this undergraduates that you see who don't know who any of the people are, and I can edit out the joke, and they'll still laugh because of this contagious effect. Um, <coughs> we wanted to know, we've got these sets of positive emotions, again, see if any of them were basic expressions, according to Paul Edmund's <coughs> uh, suggestion, along with the negative emotions we were already working with, we went out to work with the HEMBA, this is principally the work of my PhD student, Disa Sota, and also Frank Lyons, Eisner, who worked in my lab. And they were working with the Himba. They live in northern Namibia. They have a very isolated, unwesternized lifestyle. They're not contaminated by our culture. And what uh, Disa and Frank, I mean, it took a lot of testing because it's not easy to do this work. Uh, the other thing that they were doing was looking at not just how the Himba recognize our expressions of emotion, they also recorded the Himba expressing emotional states to play that to Westerners. So here's an example of somebody expressing an emotion. Was triumph. Now, for Westerners, certainly for UK people, that's more commonly something like a kind of woohoo sound. The Himba don't recognise that as being a triumphant sound. They have this, what to our ears, much more formal I, 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 I sound, and we don't recognise that as sounding triumphant particularly. 
Um, people understand the emotion. The emotion is not culturally determined. The expression is. It's not a, it's not a basic emotion. It's not showing universality. What happened at the end there is he started laughing. And he started laughing. You can hear there's other people laughing. You never t tested him on their own. They are laughing their socks off. I've edited it down. It's quite a lengthy period at the start where you go, what? The, the example we used um, to try and find cross-cultural things was you killed a leopard. And this guy's going to be like, what? Somebody said, I killed a what? I couldn't do that. What are you talking about? And so, anyway, so this is the build-up. So that's why everyone's laughing. <coughs> and that is completely recognisable. Even made people start laughing. It's not in any way noticeably different from the Westerners' laughter. And when we test this, that's what we find. So what we found with the voice, remember, that's all we were, we're not testing faces here, just voices. We replicate Paul Ekman's work on disgust, fear, anger, sadness, and surprise. Vocal expressions of those are recognised in both directions. The English recognise the himba, the himba recognise the English. So going, ugh, conveys disgust in both cultures. The only positive emotion which is bi-directionally recognised, the English recognise the himba, the himba recognise the English, is laughter. So it really does look like it is a basic expression of emotion. Um, we might, of course, imagine that it should be a basic expression of emotion because we are not the only animals that laugh. This is a very short clip of the comedian Robin Williams meeting Coco, the gorilla, who can sign. Uh, she's a very direct uh, gorilla, Coco. She immediately is just like, you'll tickle me. She signs for tickling. Um, and then just see what that does when she starts being tickled. <coughs> it's quite hard to tickle gorillas. You've really got to get in there, apparently. So fighting apparently is better than hands. I don't know if anybody will got bottles to get behind that. Look, there she goes. <laughs> and then when she gets bored of this, she turns him upside down. Well, she, has to go, she looks after his nipples for like, quite a long time. And then she... Oh, she's off again. <laughs> She turns him upside down and steals his wallet. There we go. Right. <laughs> and they go, oh, she wants to know who you are. No, she's not. She is just stealing his wallet. <laughs> there we go. We aren't the only animals that laugh. It's really easy to see laughter in chimpanzees and orangutans and gorillas because it looks and sounds like human laughter. One of the problems with laughter is we haven't been looking for it in other animals. And one of the problems with that is that lots of other animals are smaller than us and we, only, we can't hear the sounds they make because they're much higher in pitch. So, for example, Jan Pankstep, the figure on the top left there, comes from a video from his lab. He identified that rats laugh and he recognised that. But they were working with rats looking at distress vocalisations they're transducing the sounds rats make so that they can hear these. And they notice the rats make a completely different sound when they're playing with each other from their distress call. And to test if that was laughter, they started tickling the rats. And the rats make the same sound and when, they're, when they're playing is when they're being tickled. And they'll make it when they're trying to get a tickle out of you. And apparently the same person tickles the same rat every day. They make it when they see you come in the lab in the morning. So you, it does really look like... And I, and I suspect it's, it's much more widespread than this. We, haven't, we really haven't been looking for it. Interestingly, when you, when you do find it, you always find it in the same setting. So its origins is always in infants being tickled or played with by adults. So its origins are actually in social bonding. And if you look at laughter and how it develops over the lifespan, it remains closely associated with play. In play, again, you find it in all mammals. It's associated with a few behaviours. These loose, open, happy smiles. 
<coughs> no tension in the mouth. Dogs have another sign, and dogs do this, that means this is all a game. When there's a sound associated with this, it's laughter. And Young Pankcep says, in its heart, this is what laughter is doing. It's an invitation to play. I'm not going to hurt you. We're on positive, friendly grounds here. Um, and I, I think in adulthood, it's really interesting because we really like laughter and we value it. There's a very nice quote here from W.H. Auden saying, amongst those who I like or admire, I can find no common denominator. Amongst those whom I love, I can. All of them make me laugh. And we tend to think that. We tend to think, you know, uh, one of the things I really love about so-and-so is they make me laugh. And we've got it almost completely wrong. We actually, it's the other way around. We laugh around people because we like them, because we love them. It's not, we think it's about humour that Robert Provine has done some really nice work on this. And he's shown that if you ask adults what makes you laugh, when do you laugh, they'll talk about jokes and talk about humour and talk about comedy. If you look at when they laugh, they laugh when they're with other people. And you're 30 times more likely to laugh if you're with somebody else than if you're on your own. And you'll laugh more if you know those people. You'll laugh more if you like those people and you want them to like you. We think it's about comedy. In fact, it remains a social behaviour. It's a behaviour associated with social bonding. When you laugh with people, you're showing them that you like them, you might even love them, you're part of the same group as them, you understand them, you agree with them. You're doing all this with quite an old mammal behaviour at the same time as you're talking to them, which is an extremely you know, human-specific behaviour. Um, <coughs> people underestimate how much they laugh. They will consistently report fewer laughs than they produce. Vettel and Todd found in a really rather boring set of conversations collected during experimental paradigms, people laugh about seven times every ten minutes of conversation, which is quite a lot for a situation where you don't necessarily know the people you're talking to. And interestingly, within those conversations, people still aren't laughing at jokes. They're laughing at statements like, I might miss my bus, I need to catch that train. And in fact, at any one time, the person who laughs most is the person who is speaking. So for a lot of the time, those conversations, it's part of the communicative act. It's part of what you're doing when you're talking to people. Um, and interestingly, if you look at it within conversation, this is, I think you can spot here, I might just have lost the attention of my colleague, uh, my, my dear late colleague, Andy Calder there. It's me talking to Stuart Rosen. What you find is people laugh at the ends of sentences. And there's even an argument that says you use it to kind of coordinate, help coordinate turns. Strikingly, that's also true in sign conversation. In sign conversation, you could be laughing all the way through your sentence because there's no onus on you to be using an articulator for something else. People don't. They still coordinate their laughs at the ends of sentences. So in fact, it's extremely tightly regulated in a conversational setting. It's not just randomly occurring. And it's also mostly not reactive. So we had just one last set of experiments I want to take you through here. Because we got interested in different sorts of laughter. And there's a, there is, in as much as there's a big literature on this, there is a movement in laughter research that says you should categorise laughter. So a sarcastic laugh is different from an evil laugh, and an evil laugh is different from a joyful laugh. And I thought, I don't know how much I believe that, because a lot of it has to do with your interpretation. I mean, the most joyful laugh in the world could still be horrible if it's at you after you've fallen over in a banana skin. So, you know, it's, sort of, it's not that it's all joyful or it's all horrible. And there is a literature that I think is quite interesting on spontaneity and the sort of genuineness of emotions. You remember all those laughs I played you earlier on were of people helplessly laughing. They wanted to stop and they couldn't stop. And then I talked about conversational laughter, where most of the conversational laughter is actually part of what the person who's talking is doing. That suggests it's voluntary. And you certainly find this in chimpanzees. Chimpanzees have two different laughs. They laugh differently if they're being tickled, an involuntary laugh, than if they're trying to make play last longer. They're more like a, a voluntary, deliberate behaviour. There's also literature on this from smiling. So people have argued that spontaneous smiles 
have different characteristics than voluntary smiles. Which of these two smiles looks nicer? One on the right. Now, you don't need me to go into this in detail, but the one on the right, he's smiling with his eyes, closed with his mouth. This is actually a composite image, the eyes from a neutral face. So it's very hard to see it this way. The one on the left looks more cold, because in fact the eyes aren't smiling. And there's some literature to suggest that when people voluntarily produce a smile, there's less involvement of these muscles. So voluntary smiles can look colder because they haven't got this warmth, spontaneous smile. So do we see anything like that in laughter? Well, to do that, we just did whatever it took to make people laugh. Okay, I apologise. What this generally translated into was people falling over. And next week, the council also said it would continue to clear pavements, but it's warned that water supplies are now at critically low levels. It's still dangerous for Dublin pedestrians. <laughs> but the city council has brought in... So, um, and then we got the same people to produce nice laughs, nice social laughs. So we didn't say, uh, you know, we didn't, we didn't want ha, ha, ha. We said, imagine your friend's told a joke and you're laughing because you like your friend. Well, it's a very funny joke. So do, they, do we end up with two sets of laughs from people, real and posed? So does this sound real or posed? <laughs> Real? Yeah, that's me, that's real. <laughs> How about this one? It's <laughs> posed, yeah. They're acoustically different, so the real laughs, remember I said you're really laughing, you generate all these forces and these things you could never do voluntarily. That was me laughing. I can't get my voice that high. I could never sing that high, I could never reach those, those highs voluntarily. I've got a high pitched laugh because of what's happening. The real laughs are longer, the higher in pitch. <coughs> they have funny squeaks and whistles. It's very hard to produce in a posed way. The posed laughs aren't just like weak real laughs. They seem to have their own thing going on. They seem to be a different kind of laugh. So, for example, you get nasality in posed laughs. You can hear it in that one, a kind of <laughs> sound. But actually, you, don't, you never ever find in real laughter. Physically, it would be very hard for you to do that when you were helplessly laughing. So it looks like actually conversational laughter. It's not like it's fake and horrible. It may actually be a recognisable, important thing on its own right. Um, so we took this into the scanner. And we, <coughs> we didn't tell people it was a study on laughter. And we didn't obviously tell them there were two different sorts of laughs in there. And to what extent we could do... We tried to mislead people by putting in other sounds. So we put in a lot of disgust sounds, because disgust is very like, emotionally contagious and very noticeable. And we put in acoustic um, baseline sounds, again, just funny chirrups and tweets, to try and distract people away from the fact that this is a study on laughter. Even though we do this, what you see is the brain responds differently to the real laughs and the posed laughs. So what you get, and these, are the, sorry, here we call it Duchenne and non-Duchenne, here, that's showing it based on our categorisation, and this is actually based on people's categorisations after we scan them. And what you find is that for the real laughs, what you get is more auditory cortex activation, probably reflecting the fact you hear all these sounds you would never hear in any other context. In contrast, the posed laughs give you lots of medial prefrontal activation, which actually only improves if you use people's own categorisations of the laughs. So when this suggests is when you hear somebody laughing helplessly, it's completely unambiguous. If you hear somebody just beside themselves with laughter, there's no question there what's going on. When you hear somebody producing a posed social laugh, <laughs> there's a reason why that person is laughing. There is some social meaning to it. And even when you're having your brain scan and you don't know what to study on laughter, <laughs> there's no overt task here. 
you're getting activation of brain areas you would associate with sort of theory of mind tasks or other tasks where you have to think about different possible reasons for, say, people's actions or for other sorts of meaning. So I think this is quite interesting, whether or not you are, you know, you're not having to do anything overt with the laughter and you're not told there's two different sorts of laughs in here, you're getting this very different pattern of activation for the two different sorts of laughs, which on one level are also much more similar than they are different to each other, they're all much more like each other than they are like disgust sounds or screams. What we didn't get was the orofacial mirror system showing us a difference, and we thought it might do, because when you ask people, they rate the real laughs as much, much more contagious than the posed laughs. Makes sense, they are more contagious. Um, instead, what we found were these orofacial mirror systems, and again, we used the localizer to do this. They didn't show a difference between the two different sorts of laugh. It was just responding to laughter. What we did find was there was significant variation across subjects. So on a subject-by-subject -subject basis, People who activated the orofacial mirror system more when they heard laughter, any laughter, were the people who were better, more accurate, at doing a pot, pot, the post-scan classification of the sounds into reimposed laughter. In other words, the orofacial mirror system isn't just responding to contagion. The more any one person recruits that when they are listening to any laugh, the better they are understanding what those laughs mean when we test them later. Of course, you don't know what the directionality is of that, but it strongly suggests there's an interesting variation across subjects. Um, it also suggests that this response isn't just contagion, because if it was just contagion, we should be seeing a greater response overall to the real laughs than the posed laughs. So it suggests that contagion isn't the whole story for these orofacial responses when you hear something like laughter. It suggests that the more you engage these systems when you're listening to laughs, maybe the more easily primed you are to join in, but maybe also it seems to suggest the better you are able to understand the laughter. So I think there's some interesting individual variation there we'd like to know a lot more about. And I'd just like to finish with a more general point. Um, so laughter has been described as the shortest distance between two people, and I like this idea because it's kind of getting at that intimacy, that social closeness of laughter. But it's probably even more important than that. There's work coming out of Bob Levinson's lab in the US where he does work with couples. He takes married couples and he puts them in a stressful situation where he measures a lot of psychophysiological things like heart rate, galvanic skin response. It gives them a difficult thing to talk about and, what he and you can see people getting stressed out. You say to the husband, tell me something your wife does that irritates you. Both the man and the woman become stressed. <laughs> the couples who manage that stress with what he calls positive affect, but he means laughter, not only immediately become less stressed, but are also the couples who stay together for longer and report uh, happier levels of, well, higher levels of satisfaction in their relationship, suggesting that laughter may be both a useful index of the strength of a relationship, but also suggesting within successful relationships, laughter is actually a very efficient way of regulating the emotional state between the two of you together. It's something you do together. And I suspect that this will not only be something you find in strong married relationships. I think, for example, this is probably going to be a characteristic of what we think of as friendship. So I'm going to finish with one last YouTube video. I apologise. It's ice and falling again. I've edited this down because there's a hell of a lot of swearing in this start. <laughs> but there's a man, basically some young men in former East Germany are making a video of a brave act to, to promote their heavy metal band on YouTube. You can see he's wearing swimming trunks, as you'll see evolving. He's expecting to get wet, he's got a towel, he's cold. 
I've edited out a tremendous amount of sort of bicep kissing and swearing, but it gets very macho at one point. I want you to pay attention to what happens when it goes wrong. What immediately, as soon as it goes wrong, but not too wrong. A somber, serious mood. Ice. Ice here is what? Is he going right again? In the middle, I'm listening. Yeah. 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 through the ice as he's expecting to, but also, there isn't blood and bone everywhere, his friends start laughing. And in the end, he starts laughing as well. I think if this video existed, and instead of his, you know, he doesn't go through the ice, not blood and bones everywhere, his friends start laughing, and he, he was just going, oh, bloody hell, Friedrich, that really hurts. I think you need to go to the hospital. We wouldn't be watching it. It wouldn't have this kind of, you know, kind of like, a, the actual contagious effect is enjoyable because it actually means he's okay. And I think it's, it's a very interesting example of like the mood changing. It's all very somber, very serious, bicep kissing, and then absolutely hysterical. As a way of basically reflecting how they've, man they've used laughter. And they don't set out to do this, but they've been able to use the laughter as a way of basically saving face, feeling better, making the pain better, being hilarious rather than being upset. And I suspect this is actually key to a lot of the ways that people use laughter. So it's not just a delightful thing we're doing to show people we like them. It's actually helping us manage our emotional state in those same interactions. So I think we need to take laughter seriously because I think actually we're actively using it with the people we are close to and other people we'd like to be close to or even just strangers with whom it's working and kind of diffusing uh, aggression and anxiety. We're using it as a way of closing those distances and making ourselves feel better. So overall, Complex and anatomical and functional streams of processing underlie the perception of speech and voice. There's a lot going on. We've got these streams in the left and the right going forward. But you've also got to think about the functional roles. It's not, it's not all just, we're not just perceiving stuff to integrate with it or to, to understand it. We, we're doing this behaviour in social settings and I think the use of those sounds, like laughter, and how we integrate that with other people actually leads to some of these other patterns of activation that we're seeing. So I think it's important to think about a much more distributed system, a complex system underlying the neurobiology of sort of communicative use of the voice. And also, I'd like to just make a short plea. Let's get the number more than 44. I think looking at positive emotions like laughter can really help us start to understand effective regulation and possibly the neurobiology of that in interaction and communication. Thank you very much. <laughs>